So, um, you know, I thought about these last few chapters of Luke, and I thought, I thought, how, what do I say in the next three weeks to draw a conclusion to Luke's story, to his gospel? And uh, I was prompted to consider speaking about Judas. And I thought, that's a strange thought. Who wants to talk about Judas? No one ever talks about Judas. He's such a rascal. We, we really just don't want to have anything to do with him. And um, I did a little background uh, reading and so forth. I found out that um, John MacArthur had written his uh, doctoral thesis on Judas and uh, admitted that even to this day, he doesn't like to think about him. I can't imagine immersing yourself so deeply in a person as to write a doctoral thesis about him. But anyway, a particularly a person like Judas. But uh, MacArthur chose to do that. And I think part of the thing that, that captivates us on the one hand and repulses us on the other is what would make Judas do what he did? What was this guy? I mean, was he evil incarnate? Did he start out as a, as a rascal and just get worse? Uh, what made him come to the place where he was willing to betray the, the kindest, gentlest, most loving, compassionate, uh, wonderful person that ever walked the planet? What would get into him to do that? And, and so on the one hand, we wonder that, but maybe another thought that some have, but perhaps not all, is, is the scary part that if he wasn't a demon from birth, then he was a normal human being at some point. Normal being fallen, yes, we're all fallen in sin, but not uh, abnormal to the point that he was any greater or lesser sinner than any of the rest of us in his birth. And therefore, whatever happened to Judas is at risk for all people. The thing that surprised those, uh, and the stories come out of Nuremberg and, and other uh, things surrounding the, the trial of the war criminals and, and those horrible medical experimenters of Nazi Germany uh, during the Holocaust, and, and as they met these people, these SS troops, these um, uh, camp commanders, these uh, horrible um, experimenters who treated uh, Jews and others as if they were not human at all. They practiced and tried out stuff on them like dogs or uh, mice or whatever, and, and, and you, you say, what, what kind of evil person is it that does that? And they realize they weren't any different than all the rest of the people. They just had an opportunity to explore their depravity without consequences. And as a, as a result of that, the evil that is in the heart of man began to emerge in their lives. These are lessons that we need to take to heart. We need to, to, to grasp these things because there lies in every human heart that capacity. And apart from the grace of God, truly the saying is, there go I. Uh, we need God's grace to change us fundamentally, to fill us with His Spirit, to remake us, to give us a new direction, to, to transform our character, to set our feet on a heavenly path, on a narrow road, to be different, to go against the tide, to, to move in an opposite direction from humanity in general, because apart from God's grace and mercy, we are in fact a mess. And Judas is simply the capstone of that messiness. 
and the horrible betrayal that he uh, participated in in the arrest and ultimately the, the mock trial and the death of Jesus. I'm only going to hit the high spots of these um, Roman numerals in my outline this morning. We're back to the study guides. I hope you got one. And uh, I hope you can just kind of take a glance there, because if I take time to go into every single point in detail, we'll be here until this afternoon. And uh, I don't think that's uh, in the best interest of all of us, so I'll be kind of moving through that. But uh, the, the first point that I make here is the history and prophecy, the election and the free will. We cannot study Judas without wondering, first of all, how did this guy evolve? What mechanism was at work in him? Was he predestined to become the betrayer? Uh, was this part of the plan of God? Uh, did Judas have a choice in this matter? How does all, all of this fit together? And as we look into the Old Testament, uh, we find out that in Zechariah and in Jeremiah, uh, which... Um, I believe it's Matthew that kind of weds these two uh, segments of Scripture together and, and tells us that the 30 pieces of silver that Zechariah mentions was used to buy the potter's field, which Jeremiah mentions. But as we go into the Old Testament and kind of delve into that, uh, we find out that um, there is predictive prophecy that one of those among the twelve is actually going to be the betrayer. Jesus indicated that He knew the one that was going to betray Him. And one of the things that uh, is a little uh, challenging to think about is that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was going to be. I would be inclined to say that that was an unusual circumstance and sort of indicated that Jesus uh, did not really have a great interest in Judas and chose him simply to fulfill his purpose. But I look back over my ministry and I realize that sometimes I've done the same sort of thing. I'm not trying to equate myself with Jesus or some of the people that I have given opportunity who resulted in betrayal, <laughs> Judas. I'm not going that far in the analogy. But I know that I have, at times past, seen an individual whom I thought had potential that I believed could have a great ministry, could be a vital part of a church family, not necessarily speaking of, of this church. And yet I also recognized that they had some character flaws, and that there was a good chance that they would go the wrong way. And that by putting them in a position, I was kind of bringing them to the Horns of a dilemma where they were going to have to make a choice whether to go for the best or become their worst. But in an extension of grace, I wanted them to make the right choice. And so I gave them an opportunity and became transparent and began to invest in discipling. And then the day came when the character flaw reared its ugly head and betrayal began to unfold and the very worst occurred. And I could not say I never saw it coming. I had a suspicion from day one that that was a possibility. But I so very much wanted this person uh, these people, because it's been more than one, I, I'm a slow learner, uh, I very much wanted these people to take advantage of the opportunity to grow in grace. 
You remember that night when Jesus went out on the mountainside and spent the whole night in prayer? And then Luke tells us the next morning he came down and of all those that were following him, he chose 12 of them. Although Luke doesn't say it, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that the subject of that all-night prayer meeting of Jesus with his father was which of the disciples shall I choose to be the inner circle? Whom shall I pick to be those special people that I invest myself in? And Judas undoubtedly came up in the conversation. And as Judas came up in that conversation and Jesus considered him, there was an awareness. Here's the likely betrayer. Here's the one. But give him a chance. And let the circumstances run their course. And Jesus chose him. Judas had some interesting talent. He was the keeper of the money bag for the disciples. Um, He apparently was good with that. Uh, He was a competent treasurer. Uh, He had some skill. Judas also had a lot of passion. He was very, very interested in some way of tipping the balance of power with Rome and Israel. And he wanted to to see that upset in some significant way so that the Jews could once again rise to prominence in their homeland. And so he had passion. And there were a lot of things about him that might commend him, aside from these character flaws. And Jesus chose him knowing from the beginning that ultimately this man was going to go the wrong direction. So we ask the question, at least I ask the question, did Judas have a choice in the direction that he went? Was his decision to betray Jesus one that he made on his own, or was he predestined to do that task in order to fulfill the Scripture? And when I look at Psalm 41, and I see that um, verse 9, very, very prophetic about Judas, particularly at the Last Supper, Jesus, uh, or David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. There's an indication there that Jesus invested in Judas. He did not treat him as if he had the plague. He didn't keep him at arm's length. There was no subtle uh, psychological rejection going on that set him up for a fall. Jesus extended to Judas every opportunity that he extended to to the other eleven. He loved him. He gave him every chance. He called him his friend. He... He put his life into him. I started to say it's hard to betray someone that never trusts you. But this is one in whom he trusted. He gave Judas the benefit of the doubt and put into him his confidence, letting him manage the funds, which we know from other Scripture he pilfered. And embezzled and used for his own purpose because he loved money. And he used to go through the bag and take some out for himself when no one supposedly was looking. And yet, somehow he had to cook the books. And there were other smart ones like Matthew in the group that probably had some questions from time to time. 
But if you go to John chapter 13 and you look at that chapter, you find that Jesus' love for Judas kind of rises to, to its climax as he makes every last effort to give Judas the opportunity to turn around. And I guess the point that I want to make here is, in the purposes and plan of God for Jesus to go to the cross, it didn't have to be one of the twelve that betrayed Him. It could have been someone else. There could have been another way. It didn't have to unfold precisely that way. In God's foreknowledge, we are given the predictive prophecies that tell us how this thing is going to unfold and that it is going to fit into the plans and purposes of God. And by the way, uh, that's one of the uh, amazing things about... Um, the fact that the Scripture says God is able to make even the evil to praise Him. That's one of the amazing things. That Satan is doing his dead-level best to destroy believers, to destroy the plan of God, to thwart His purposes, to get under our skin, to bring us down, in some way or another, to mess things up, behind every martyred believer, there is the hatred of a satanic enemy. There is an evil in the world that is out to crush the purposes of God. Satan is constantly on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. And every time he wins one of those victories, he kind of thinks, I got one for... Uh, you know, the S team, the Satan team. I, I, I'm winning this. I'm getting ahead. I'm making some progress. And I have no question in my mind that when we stand before with God at the great white throne judgment, we will not be there to be judged. We will be there as His family. And finally, that serpent of old, that evil one, will come to appear before God and there will be the host of all the saints whom He has tormented and tortured and dogged and defeated and pummeled and pounded throughout history. And they're going to be, we're going to be shimmering in white robes of righteousness in all the glory of the heavenly body, of the heavenly family, as we move into eternity with Jesus Christ. And to Satan's utter dismay, he is going to realize that everything he intended to do to destroy the church, the Jews, and the people of God has turned on him in such a way that it has come out to their betterment and the glory of God, and God wins. You know, that is a glorious thing. That's a glorious thing. And so even though uh, we know from predictive prophecy that it is going to be one of the twelve, uh, it didn't have to be. It could have gone another course. And the point of all that is that even in the last moment, it's interesting to note in John 13 that Satan does not actually enter Judas. And by the way, that's the only place I can find that occurs until ultimately the Antichrist shows up on the scene in Revelation. But Satan actually enters uh, into Judas and, uh, and that's found in verses 26 and 27 of John 13. Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas. Dipping the morsel as the host and the first person is handed to was a sign of honor and respect. My friend who dips in the bread with me, he hands him the morsel. It's the final 
opportunity for Judas to fall on his feet and repent. Jesus is holding out to him the opportunity to go back. There can still be another way. But Judas took the morsel, and Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas chose his course. He picked his path. Throughout his time with Jesus, starting out with great hopefulness, seeing great opportunity, and ultimately experiencing disappointment. Judas chose his path. He was not predestined to be evil. He chose to let his natural inclination go unmitigated. In that direction. Some people will quote Jacob and Esau in defense of uh, the sovereign predetermination of people's choices. And they're quick to quote the passage, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. But what we fail to take into account is the chronology of Jacob and Esau and when that statement was made. That statement comes from Malachi. The good 2,000 years after Jacob and Esau were born. But what God says before they were born is, the elder will serve the younger. And Jacob is the one upon whom I have set my affection and my focus for the future of Israel. And Esau will serve him. Jacob was a swindler, and what he did, he did maliciously. He he was trying to help God out. God didn't need help. And Esau didn't have to have the bitterness. He could have served God in second place. We wouldn't have this horrible mess in the Middle East today if Esau had just said, I'm all right with not being in the line of, of Israel, I'm happy to serve God as a son of, uh, of um, Isaac. I'm, I'm happy with that. But he didn't. He became embittered. He became jealous. He chose a path that led him toward destruction. He infused his bitterness into his family. And as the line evolved, they became enemies of the nation of Israel. And then God says, 2,000 years later, I have hated Esau, but I have loved Jacob. But He didn't hate him from the beginning. Esau made a sequence of bad choices. So did Jacob, for that matter. The sovereignty of God is not limited to our moral direction. It is, it is clearly overwhelming in the history and unfolding of the strategic events of the human race. But the side that you and I play on is left to us as we hear the gospel and have the opportunity to turn and follow God in His ways. Now, we need to keep that in mind. Because I'm going to say some things at the end of the message that, that we need to remember when bad things happen to you. And when you feel like, you know, what did I do and how did I end up in this place? That sometimes you're just reaping your own harvest. And other times the devil is trying to destroy you. But God loves you. God loves you. And He has not determined that you're going to be evil or in despair or defeated. 
He has plans for you, for a hope and a future, not for destruction. So what led Judas down that road? I've called it disappointment with God is the path of betrayal. There's some interesting insight into Judas' politics. The love of money is a root of many evils. Judas had some character flaws, and among them was a love of money. I thought about the current state of politics in our country. I couldn't help but, I mean, how can you not think when you mention politics about what's going on? And I thought about that, and I thought about the Democrats who want to give everybody everything, and the Republicans who want to keep it all for themselves. And I thought, really, there's a problem on both sides here. You know, uh, many years ago, um, oh, come on, Francis Schaefer, that's the guy's name, Francis Schaefer, um, gave a series of lectures on capitalism with compassion. And he said that God's plan was for people to be innovative, creative, to work hard, to accumulate uh, to the best of their ability and giftedness, uh, wealth and prosperity, capitalism, with compassion. And they were always to voluntarily and without duress to take care of their neighbors and to look out for one another and to remember the poor and the widows and the orphans and to minister to those who could not work and to make sure that no one was left destitute. It's a very fascinating uh, study of economics and Scripture. And if you study the Old Testament, you kind of come away with that capitalism with compassion. We tend to have compassion without any money. (laughs) Or we have capitalism without any compassion. We can't seem to get the two together. And and it drives us. And one of the things that was driving Judas' politics was, there are a lot of reasons for wanting to get rid of Rome. And there were a lot of people in that day that were willing to join the insurrections and the rebellions to get rid of Rome for for a multiplicity of, of motives. But one of those motives was, I want my money. I don't want the tax collectors to get it. I don't want it going to Caesar. I want to keep it all. Judas was one of those uh, rabble-rousing insurrectionists at heart because he wanted to keep his money, all of it. He didn't want to give any of it up. He was even willing to steal to keep it. If he could get it that way, he wanted... Uh, his best shot. And he saw Jesus as an opportunity to exploit that passion. He had visions of himself becoming, you know, the chief financial officer of the kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. He had this idea that he was going to be the guy holding the purse strings of the new agenda, of the new kingdom, and he was going to be in charge. And these ideas were running around in his head. Every time Jesus went a different direction, it frustrated him. So finally you have Jesus going into Jerusalem in the last week, and Judas can see the tension mounting, and he realizes... They've been after him for a long time, but by George, they're going to win. They're going to they're going to take him down. He's not fighting the way you're going to fight if you're going to win this battle. He's right out there in the temple. He's he's teaching and and flaming and aggravating all the Jewish leaders. That's not how you go about this. And as Judas began to watch what was happening with Jesus he realized that Jesus was not going to satisfy his agenda. He was going to have to throw his lot in with somebody else. 
And so, as one who was deeply attracted to money, he offered a deal. Thirty pieces of silver. And I'll find a time and a place where you can take him with the least amount of resistance. Somewhere along the way, Judas made up his mind that he would give up Jesus because he was disappointed. He signed up to follow Jesus expecting a certain return on his investment. And he didn't get it. And he was disillusioned with God. I wonder how many of us have signed up to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. I wonder how often we have expectations that fall way outside of the purposes and the plan of God. I wonder if we know what it's like to walk the path with Him in His breaking heart for a world that is lost in sin. Or rather, we are hoping that by aligning ourselves with God, uh, things will go easier for us. We won't get sick. If we do, we'll get healed instantly. We won't have family breakups. There won't be any tragedies in our lives. We won't find ourselves wrongly accused. We won't lose our money in poor investments that go south. We will live well and retire well and die in our sleep and have wonderful children and fantastic grandchildren and our lives will be just Beautiful, because we're Jesus' followers. Wake up and smell the thorns. We don't live in that kind of world, friends. We live in a world that is fallen. It's broken. And we're part of the problem. We're broken. So, broken people live in a broken world. And we bang into one another all the time. And we make messes. And people make messes. And jobs are lost. And companies fail. And sickness and illness is rampant and getting worse. And economies tank. And wars and rumors of wars fill the planet and crime riddles the streets and God says I love these people I love these wicked sinful wretched people will you follow me into the cesspool of humanity to reach them before it's too late. You're going to get really dirty. You're going to stink. You're going to get some diseases. You're going to be exhausted. People aren't going to understand you. They're going to betray you. Maybe those closest to you. Will you follow me to reach the masses? See, we get disappointed with God because we sign up and we have expectations that do not align with His purposes. And that was Judas' problem. You notice I'm not saying a whole lot this morning about sin. 
I'm not talking about just plain old everyday ordinary sin. That doesn't often lead to betrayal. It can sure make a mess, but it typically doesn't lead us to walk away from God in disappointment. But disillusionment does. God is not what I expected. He's not living up to my anticipation. I gave myself to Him thinking I would get X, and I haven't gotten it. I have to blame the evangelist, the preachers, and those of you that share Jesus on, on the streets and in the marketplace. To some extent, because we have offered uh, uh, false advertising. We have promised things that God does not promise. I can remember a time when getting people to come to Christ was so important that you would tell them all the rosy, beautiful stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, wouldn't you like that? Well, of course they would. Well, would you like to give up all of your sin and all of your rebellion and your self-will and die to yourself and follow the crucified one as his ambassador? Oh, well, we forgot that part. And then they find out that God's not living up to our advertisement. You know, we have to think that through. We need to be careful that we're working with the Holy Spirit and not trying to do a super sales job on the next potential convert because we often offer them a bill of goods that God does not stand behind. The Christian life is a call to discipleship. It's a call to sacrifice. It is a call to die to self. I just thought about it. We interviewed a fellow a few weeks ago on the licensing and ordaining committee uh, for his uh, ordination. And uh, one of the things he does, besides being a street evangelist and a youth pastor at the church where he serves, is uh, he is uh, a lead guitarist and singer in a um, punk rock horror group. I, I just didn't know you could put all that together. I just, I, I have to confess, I really didn't. And, um, you know, they, they've got all the, the, the goth and the horror dress and the tats and the earrings and the, you know, and to see him on stage without a shirt and his stringy hair soaked from sweat down to his waist and playing his guitar and you, and you look and you think, hmm. Not your typical CMA ordinand. <clears throat> but they wrote a song called Everybody's Gotta Die. Or Everybody's Gonna Die. And that's absolutely true. Everybody's gonna die. You're either gonna die when you get to the end of your life, or you're gonna die to follow Jesus. You do have a choice how and when. Isn't that amazing? Fantastic insight. I'm sort of multi-eclectic in my musical genre. I was able to listen to the whole song and actually get a lot out of it. Um, you have to listen to it three or four times to be able to get the words out of it. But once once you get past that, it's uh, it's pretty amazing, and, and it's and it's a powerful song because we can choose when and how and why if we're willing to follow Jesus and die to ourselves. By the way, he told a story. I am on a rabbit trail. Kate was teasing me before the service that I never chase rabbits. Of course not, I, but I'm definitely on one at the moment. But uh, he was uh, sharing with us about being in a biker bar playing a gig in, in Milwaukee, and there were about 30-something Hell's Angels present. And he said about 25 of them were in tears, wanting to know more about God. Friends, I will never reach a Hell's Angel member in a, in a biker bar. I, it will never happen. 
I'm not afraid of it, but it's just not who I am. I won't be there. But he is, and he's sharing Jesus. It's messy. It's messy. Well, Judas didn't get what he wanted. And in the final analysis, when everything went south, he had nothing more to live for, and he killed himself. Friends, knowing God and understanding his purposes fortify us against betrayal. And I, and I ask the question, how is it that we can know God like that? How can we know God and his character in such a way that we are not inclined to um, betray him, to, to walk away from him? And the more I thought about that, it, there, there are always two parts to spiritual growth and, and coming to know God. There, there are always two parts. That's faith and then experience. And what I mean by that is you believe Him and then He reveals Himself to you in personal experience to be that which you have believed about Him. Stay with me. And God is a little bit uh, interesting in this way that He requires the faith before He offers the revelation. He says, trust me, and I will show you myself. That's kind of a paraphrase of the passage that says, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And so God tells us things about Himself. And when we come by faith to believe them, in time He reveals His character to be consistent with that understanding. And I've just written a few of these down that I, I want you to think about. Um, my kingdom is not of this world. John eighteen thirty six. That ought to give us a clue. Did you know that? That should tell us that what God is after isn't here. Not in the physical realm, not in materialistic, not in politics, uh, not in this uh, natural environment. God is not after those kinds of things. He has a different agenda. His kingdom is not of the world. We, we just need to get that one down from the outset. If we follow Him, we're not going to go a path that the world embraces because that's not where his kingdom is secondly luke 18 19 no one is good except god alone but god is good he is good all the time that's his nature he is a good god goodness goes in a sense, beyond righteousness, it goes beyond many other attributes like that. Paul gives that illustration in Romans where he says, hardly anyone will die for a righteous man. I mean, who wants a legalistic person that keeps the letter of the law? There's no mercy there. There's no grace there. Some might die for a good man because a good man gets outside of the box to, to show love. You know, you've heard me tell, tell you this before. The righteous guy says, I'm sorry, I know you don't have any money and I know you've got hungry kids, but you have to pay for those groceries, you can't have them. Nobody's going to die for that guy, probably. But somebody says, you know what, I'm so sorry, I, I, I can't check you out and... and, and let this go through and have a short in my drawer, but I'll pay for it. And you go ahead and take the groceries. Ah, that's a good person. Some people would give their life for that kind of a guy. But God died for us in that while we were yet sinners. God loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. You see, he is good all the time. God is love. That is the essence of his being. I've heard uh, theologians say that you cannot exalt one attribute of God above another. I beg to differ. I understand the concept that God is all that he is in an infinite degree, and you cannot therefore assign greater or lesser magnitude to infinity. It is infinity. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely righteous. He is infinitely just. He is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely filled with wrath. God is infinitely everything. But at the core and essence of His being, He is infinitely love. That that is the heart of His nature. And that's what this is all about. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the story, when life is done on this planet, there is faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. It's the one that endures eternally. And God is that. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, sometimes, if you're like I am, you have to say, God, you said you would never leave me or forsake me. And right now, I don't sense you. Where are you? I need you to show yourself to me. Because right now, I don't see you anywhere. That is not a lack of faith. That is just an honest admission of how I feel. I'm in trouble. I'm feeling alone. And I cannot find God in this moment. But I know you're here, so pull the curtain back. Because you said you would never leave me. And he won't. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is holy and he dwells in unapproachable light. I'm sorry I missed one. He does not tempt anyone. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he anyone. Listen, God is not the author of sin. He did not make it. He is not responsible for it. I tried to think how to explain this, and I thought, you know, you you love your kids. And when they get to be about 15 or so, and and that moment comes when they can get a learning permit, you know, you you go down with them and you get that driver's permit. And they start driver's ed, and they start riding with you. Did you know you're supposed to sign off that they've had 25 hours of experience with you in the car driving? Some of you can't stand it for 25 hours, but, but that, that's actually a requirement. Is it 50? Whoa, times have changed. You got off lucky. <laughs> Should have had that other 25 hours. <laughs> yes, indeed. But anyway, you know, you love your kids. You want to give them opportunities. So you invest the time, the effort. You you train them. You teach them. You know, I'll never forget the light that came on in John's eye when I told him, if you adjust your side mirrors, not so that you can see the back end of your car, but so that you can see a car in your blind spot. You will never wonder if there's a car in your blind spot. And it was like, Dad, that's one of the best things I've ever learned. Wow, you know, I, I, I can just look in my mirror and I see the car that's right there. If you've never done that before, it'll disorient you for, for a while. But you can see what's behind you in the rear view. So you invest. You, you pour yourself into them. You train them. You teach them. And then comes the day when they can go and and take the test, and take the driving test, and qualify for the license. They get the license, and they start to drive. And then one night, they party hardy and drink too much, and they get behind the wheel, and they've been drinking illegally at a party that was illegal at somebody's house where mom and dad were gone, and they're driving down the road, and they go too fast, and they wreck the car, and someone's hurt. 
Are you responsible for that? Anybody think you're responsible for that as a parent? Of course you're not. Common sense tells you that. You gave them the potential for that, though, along with wonderful opportunities to do well. And they betrayed the trust. They didn't love you in that moment because they made bad choices that you have taught them better. You see what I'm saying? God is not the author of evil. The fact that the potential exists is necessary for love to have any meaning at all. But we made the mess. And he's been doing nothing ever since but offering us redemption and a way out. Isn't that amazing? So, friends, I ask you this morning, are you willing? Are you willing to believe God, to trust him? Are you willing to put your hope in him? To allow him to reveal himself to you in such a way that you grow in an understanding of his nature and join with him in becoming an ambassador to the cesspool of humanity to get in the muck and the filth and the stink in order to redeem and rescue that which is lost. And God says, I love you. I'm good. I'll never leave you. I'll always be with you. I will empower you with my spirit. And I will keep what you've committed to me safe until you join me in eternity. And we'll celebrate forever. And all whom you bring. Isn't that cool? So, learn a lesson from Judas. Know what you signed up for. And be willing to take the real journey.